Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from November 2016 on contemporary particle physics. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm standing here in the center of the room, and we're going to get started now. I'm so glad to see all of you here tonight. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Amy Harris, and I'm director of the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History, and we're the organizers of this Science Cafe series. Tonight's program is called, Has Particle Physics Fizzled? And that'll be a great program ahead. But before we get started, I just want to invite you all to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this space available for us. And now I'd like to introduce Kira Berman, our Assistant Director for Education, who will introduce our speakers. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. So over the summer, I was following um, particle physics in the news. And, uh, and I had this question, and I emailed in the fall. I emailed Aaron, and I said, I have this question about particle physics. Like, what is this I read about this nightmare scenario where there's no new physics? And we got to talking, and now there's a science cafe about this question. And, and I assure you, when I, when I was reading the articles about the nightmare scenario, I was not thinking about politics at all at the time. <laughs> but um, now it's my turn to introduce our two speakers. Thank you both very much for being here. Um, Professor Aaron Pierce uh, is a theorist who studies extensions of the standard model of particle physics. Among the questions he explores are, what makes up the dark matter? what explains the excess of matter over antimatter in, the, in our universe. Pierce did his undergraduate work at Rice University and the University of Cambridge, received his PhD from UC Berkeley, which is where I grew up, and then did postdoctoral work at, st at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center and Harvard before joining the faculty here at the U of M in 2006. He was the recipient of the Henry Russell Award in 2012 considered the university's highest honor for early to mid-career faculty. And he is currently the director of the Michigan Center for Theoretical Physics. Please welcome Aaron Pierce. <laughs> Professor Dan Amide grew up in Chicago and received his degrees from MIT and UC Berkeley. Got a postdoc position at the University of Chicago. I have a connection there too and came to U of M in 1990. He worked on an electron-positron collider at Stanford and for many years at the proton-antiproton collider at Fermilab, where he had a role in the discovery of the top quark. He is a fellow of the American Physical Society and he is now working on the ATLAS experiment at the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Please welcome Professor Dan Amide. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me here. Uh, so my plan basically was just to talk a little bit about particle physics very generally, uh, what it is, what we're trying to learn, uh, what kinds of questions we're especially excited about. Um, and so then I'll maybe talk a little bit more about one or two of those questions. And then I want to turn things over to Dan to uh, tell us a little bit more about the kinds of tools we use to try and answer those questions. And then I guess you'll have some time to talk amongst yourselves and you'll be have plenty of time to, to ask us questions. Um, so so that's, that's my plan. 
I also wanted to point out, I guess in advance of our discussions, I noticed a number of physicists who came in. Um, there's some particle physicists along the wall there. Uh, I see several of people from my quantum mechanics class over there. So if you want to try and corner a physicist during the downtime, uh, it doesn't just have to be me or Dan. There's other expertise in the room. So, um, all right. So uh, first, just a little bit about uh, particle physics in general. So uh, particle physics is, uh, at its core, the, the study of basically what are things made out of? And so what are the basic building blocks of our universe? And how do those basic building blocks talk to one another? What are the ways in which those uh, basic building blocks interact with one another? So if you look at uh, on your table, you'll see a little something that looks like this. And this is the picture of our best guess of how most of the building blocks in our universe, what they are and how they talk to each other. So this is the standard model of particle physics. And this is something that's been developed uh, over I guess almost 50 years, uh, so in the late 60s, uh, people started trying to put this theory together, and with uh, 50 years of heroic experimental work, uh, we've been able to confirm uh, that this is the basic picture, and there are uh, two main ingredients, so the outer ring is basically stuff, that's what we think things are made out of, and the basic ingredients are things called uh, quarks and leptons, so quarks are the things that are inside the protons and neutrons, uh, and then uh, leptons are things like the electron, but it turns out there are other copies of the electron, and then there are these other guys called neutrinos, um, which are produced, for example, in radioactive decay. And so that's the, uh, the stuff part, and then there's a question about once, you, once I tell you what all the stuff is, so you can think about that as the very modern day version of the periodic table that you used to see in your chemistry classroom, right? So in your chemistry classroom on the wall, you'd see a periodic table, and those things are made out of protons and neutrons and electrons, but if you drill a little bit deeper, this would be the physicist's periodic table. But then I have to tell you, once you have all of the stuff, uh, how does that interact with each other? And that's uh, the language that we use to talk about that are uh, so-called force carriers, and we now know that there are uh, actually uh, uh, well, there's, there's, there's four main forces. There's electricity and magnetism, uh, and one of the force carrier that corresponds to that is what's called the photon. There's something called the weak force, which uh, there's a force carrier associated with that. That's the W and the Z. And there's uh, something called the strong force, which is responsible for gluing the quarks together inside of protons and neutrons, and we have creatively called the particle that's responsible for that the gluon. So there's the electromagnetic force, the strong force, and the weak force. And then in addition to those three, there's the one that you guys probably think about the most often, but we think about the least often, and I'll try and explain to you why that is, and that's gravity. So gravity is not listed anywhere on this picture. So gravity is not a part of the standard model of particle physics, and that actually is an important piece of information. And so let me tell you why, that we, why we don't talk about uh, gravity when we talk about particle physics very much. Um, so the main reason is that gravity is super weak. You say, how can that be? I'm not flying off into space. Uh, but gravity is really, really weak. And the way I always like to describe that is I can take a paperclip. I can hold that paperclip up with the magnet. And what is pulling against that magnet? It is the Earth, the gravity of the Earth. And it loses to that magnet, right? So gravity is exceedingly weak. And the only reason it's at all relevant for our everyday activities is that you have the entire Earth, which is a lot of protons and neutrons, and the gravitational force is being built up because of all of those protons together. And once they add up together, it can make gravity important. 
But if you're describing the interactions of individual particles, gravity doesn't matter at all. It's so weak. You don't care about it at all for individual things. And uh, the way that we, one of the ways we can describe the weakness of gravity is uh, through what's called the Newton's constant. So you might remember back to a high school physics class, there is this thing called G Newton that you use to calculate the gravitational force law. But it turns out that uh, gravitational constant is related to something uh, related to a, an energy scale. An energy scale in particle physics called the Planck mass. And we don't need to know anything other than the about the Planck mass, except for it's really, really big. It is about 10 to the 16, so that's a one with 16 zeros after it, times bigger than the energy scales that we explore at colliders like the Large Hadron Collider. And the crucial thing that I need you to take away from this whole little discussion is that the reason that gravity is so weak is precisely because this Planck scale is 10 to the 16 times bigger than the scales that we probe at the Large Hadron Collider. Okay, so that's, that's an important fact. So now uh, let me just go back to the standard model for a few minutes. So I already said that this thing works super well. Um, it was not complete until about four years ago. Uh, so it was uh, completed once we discovered this guy in the center. This guy in the center was the Higgs boson. So uh, without the Higgs boson, the standard model worked very well for a lot of things, but it had a serious problem. So this one of the serious problems was you could do a thought experiment and you could imagine colliding two particles together. And if you went to a high enough energy, the probability of those two particles colliding was greater than one, greater than 100%. That doesn't make any sense. That's, uh, quantum mechanics is weird, but it's not that weird. Uh, you, don't, you don't have things ever happening with a probability of greater than 100%. So that tells you that there was something missing that made that theoretical craziness go away. So the theory was inconsistent without this additional piece of the puzzle, and that was the Higgs boson. And so once we found that, the theory was beautiful and consistent, and you might say, okay, aren't we done? So we've, we've explained uh, this last puzzle. This thing now exists, and we, that got rid of this theoretical inconsistency. This particle is uh, super important for explaining how particles get mass, and I'd be happy to talk more about that if people are so inclined to go in that direction. But, um, but the... So as of 2012, we had a nice mathematically consistent structure that gave beautiful predictions. The problem is that uh, it doesn't explain everything. And it doesn't explain some super important things. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I would give you my answer to has particle physics fizzled. The, answer, the short answer would be no, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, the, uh, one of the most important questions is uh, what is the dark matter? So that could be a topic for a whole nother science cafe. But the zeroth order statement is that there is uh, five times as much stuff out there that is not made up of any of the things that we see in this picture than there is of ordinary protons and neutrons and stars and Jupiters and rocks and everything else. Um, there's five times as much of something else and we don't know what it is. It's not on this piece of paper. And so we really want to find that thing. And that's, uh, I would say, priority number one. Uh, one of the things that's exciting is that, um, that that particle could, in fact, show up at the Large Hadron Collider. And we could certainly talk about that. So that's one big, huge target um, for, for particle physics that still is out there. Um, there's a number of other targets. 
Um, there's, as I said, uh, as Kira mentioned in the introduction, there's a big puzzle. Why is there more matter than antimatter in our universe? Um, so there's things like electrons, you know about those, but uh, there's also things called positrons. Maybe some of you have had a, a PET scan before. Um, so that's just like an electron, but it has a positive charge. The laws of nature, if I take the laws of the standard model, um, they are very nearly symmetric uh, between particles and antiparticles. And if you look around, you don't see lots of antiparticles. You just see particles. So why, why is that? Uh, and another way of saying that is why is there something rather than nothing? Because if there were equal amounts of particles and antiparticles, they find each other, that turns into energy, and that would be a bad day for us if we had a, a, a particle-antiparticle symmetric universe. So um, the fact that uh, there is something tells us that somehow there had to be an asymmetry between these two things, and we don't understand that. So we don't understand what the dark matter is. We don't understand why there's more matter than antimatter. We don't understand why the top quark weighs about as much as 170 gold, or about as much as a gold nucleus, about 170 protons, whereas the electron weighs about one two-thousandth of a proton. So there's about a factor of a million difference between two, these two guys that we both view as fundamental building blocks of nature. Why are these masses so different? No idea. So we don't know that. Uh, are these forces related to each other in some fundamental way? So are they all part of some grand unified force that might have existed in the very early universe? Uh, that's something we like to think about as well. And then another question, which is very important for the future of the LHC, is this question about why is gravity so weak? So uh, this goes, so there's uh, this very interesting phenomenon that uh, quantum mechanics likes to make the Higgs boson as heavy as possible. And the, the better way to say that is that if you tell me the most, the highest energy scale in your theory, there's, uh, there's uh, quantum mechanics will try and drag that mass up of the Higgs boson up to that highest energy scale. The Higgs boson, I already told you, the mass of, is was discovered at the LHC, and I told you that the LHC probes energy scales that are 10 to the 16 times smaller than the Planck mass. That's the highest mass scale that we know about that's important in nature. It's the mass scale that's associated with gravity. If I tried to say, where does quantum mechanics want the Higgs mass to be? The answer is, it wants it to be 10 to the 16 times higher than it is. Uh, and it's not impossible for it to be as light as it is. Obviously not impossible, because it's there. But it's a puzzle that it's so different from the expectation. And so another way of saying that is it's a puzzle why gravity is so much weak. Why is there this big hierarchy of scales that apparently exists in nature? And, uh, and so we expect that there should be some physics really close to the mass of the Higgs boson that uh, tames that quantum mechanical pressure that's trying to drag it up to these highest scales. And that's one of the main targets for the LHC. Now that we found the Higgs boson, this is a really puzzling particle. Why is it where it is and not 10 to the 16 times heavier than it is? And we're hoping that that's something we'll find the answer to in the next run. And the other thing I just want to say is this particle is something we just discovered. We just discovered this Higgs boson, and this is apparently one of the most fundamental things in all of nature. It's very different from everything we've discovered before, and so we should study the heck out of it. Uh, and that, that's just beginning. And so, uh, if nothing else, the question is, particle physics fizzled? I mean, I would love it if there were tons of new physics beyond the Higgs boson to be 
studied at the, the LHC, that would be fantastic. But I'm also just excited to measure the heck out of this new thing and learn as much as we possibly can about it. So let me stop there, give some time to Dan. and. Thank you, Aaron, and um, thanks for having me here. So I'm going to talk on the complementary experimental side to all this. Um, of course, we're, as experimentalists, we even understand all this theory at some level, not as well as he does, right? But we, but we have the job of trying to probe and test this. Um, and so to just establish some basic uh, groundwork for that, I've got some pictures that we should look at. So can we back up to slide one? So the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is an accelerator uh, in a tunnel underground. There's an aerial view of it on the top there. Uh, the thing is, is five miles in diameter and 18 miles in circumference. So big tunnel, and um, it's underground. So the lower picture, you can see, you know, if you could look 400 meters underground, uh, the, 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 the tunnel has been carved under there, um, circular tunnel. And <clears throat> what you see there are the locations of the experimental areas. And the two experiments that we're concerned about for probing the high energy frontier are CMS, which is closest to us in the picture, and ATLAS. Okay, next slide, please. So if you could look in that tunnel, you know, what, what is this tunnel for? Um, it is mostly a string of magnets. In the center of the magnets is a vacuum pipe. In the vacuum pipe circulate the protons, uh, proton beams, at six and a half trillion electron volts each in energy. The magnets are responsible simply for, you know, a charged particle in a magnetic field bends, right? Its, it's path bends in a magnetic field. So the magnets are responsible for keeping the particles moving in a circle. <clears throat> Particles are in the beam pipe, in the center of the beam pipe, and so it's basically, you know, an electric current at the center of the beam pipe, a current without a wire, right, being held in orbit by the magnetic field, um, and counter-rotating beams of protons circulating in both directions. Uh, at those two places in the ring where the experiments are, CMS and ATLAS, the beams are focused to very small size and then steered into each other and collide. Surrounding the collision region then are the two experiments, CMS and ATLAS. I work on the ATLAS experiment, um, but in a great display of ecumenical parody, I'm showing you a picture of the CMS experiment because <laughs> it's kind of easier to understand that one is, right? Uh, so you look at the picture at the bottom, you know, in the foreground there, you can see the human in silhouette, right? To give you a sense of scale of the experiment. Mm -hmm. The CMS, the compact muon solenoid. Um, so the experiment, remember the beams are colliding in the center, right? And so there's a kind of a cylindrical symmetry to this whole thing, right? So to detect the products of the collision, 
right? We surround the collision point with these concentric layers of different detector technologies. So without going too much into the details, so the blue stuff in the middle there, uh, deep in the middle, are uh, uh, detectors that make non-destructive measurements of the trajectories of the particles, imaging measurements, so we can see the direction that the particles are going in. Outside of that are destructive absorptive measurements where the particles lose their energy uh, in devices called calorimeters. Uh, and that allows us then to measure the energies of the particles, right? And the, the inner imaging detectors shows us their directions. So then we have their directions and their energies, right? Which basically allows us to reconstruct their momenta and their energies. The direction, if it's a charged particle, the direction it bends in the magnetic field tells us it's charge. And there you have it. I mean, these are elementary particles. They don't have many properties. They have a charge, a mass. Uh, they possess a direction and an energy. And there you have it. The beams are colliding in the center of the detector at 40 megahertz. 40 million times a second. The, detect, the, the, the debris from the collision flies into the detector, you know, and is there for 20 nanoseconds, for 20 billionths of a second. And the detector records that information about the presence of the particle or the energy of the particle electronically. Uh, and then there's a huge amount of electronics on this thing, reading all that data out you know, and shipping it off to disk. Right. So the detector is taking, if you like, these electronic snapshots of these beams as they collide 40 million times a second. <clears throat> so, you know, when we say we found the Higgs boson, it's not like we got that thing in a bottle or anything. You know, there was some collision that showed the effect of the Higgs boson, and it was gone in 20 billionths of a second, but we have the record of that thing on disk. So, next slide. So, on the upper right here is a visualization of the record from one collision. Um, <clears throat> so, so, think of this thing as this, you're looking at the cylinder. The cylinder is aligned between the upper right and the lower left corner, right? And you can see lying along that diagonal, um, the sprays of yellow particles, the, the yellow, yellow, yellow lines are the sprays, are the, the, the yellow lines there are the reconstructed trajectories. And so you can see a spray of particles going <clears throat> kind of along the beam line, forward and backward, pointing to those circles at the top right and lower left, which are the kind of end caps of the cylinder. That is the debris, that is the inessential debris from the collisions of two protons. Because the proton, you know, is made of smaller things. We always, in chemistry class and stuff, we learn that the protons are particles. Really, really they're kind of, they're atoms. They're a composite system made of the smaller things called quarks. And when the proton and the counter-rotating proton collide, what we hope is two of the quarks in there will collide very head-on with a lot of energy making the new stuff. 
And then all the other quarks, the other ones are kind of spectators, and they pass through in a kind of peripheral way. So that's that stuff flying kind of along the axis of the detector, along that diagonal from upper right to lower left. And then in the center, you can see pointing off to the lower right, two particles, those guys there. So those yellow, those white spikes represent energy in the calorimeter, and you can see there's yellow tracks pointing to them. Those are electrons. What? Oh! Excellent. All right. See, energy in a calorimeter and tracks pointing to that, those are electrons. These sprays of particles pointing to these energy deposits in the calorimeter, those are called jets, and they represent, uh, they represent outgoing quarks from the interaction. Everything else in this picture, all these dots here, is all random energy in the calorimeter, and this is the stuff going down the beam pipe. This is the stuff of interest. And all of this, of course, was gone in 20 billionths of a second and exists on disk for us to study. So here's how you discover the Higgs boson. Okay. The Higgs, among its many decay modes, decays to two carriers of the weak interaction, the Zs. And the Zs can each decay to two leptons, which is what's shown here, or the Z can decay to two quarks and become two jets. So you look through your billions of events on disk, and you say, find one that gives me two electrons with the mass of the Z and two quarks with the mass of the Z. Or find one that has four electrons with two pairs with the mass of the Z. And plot what the total mass of all those objects are. Now, what do I mean when I talk about mass? Isn't that like a thing falling in gravity? Turns out um, mass is a quantity related to the motion of a thing that you can calculate if a thing breaks up into other particles, you can calculate the mass of the original system from the momentum and energies of the final state particles. It's a detail. You look through your billions of events. You find the ones that have a couple things that you like, and you say, plot the mass of the four objects in those events. This is the mass of the four objects in all of the events that had four electrons. <clears throat> we have billions of these events, you know, and all kinds of, I mean, everything is happening, everything that can happen happens in there. So we have recorded events, an event means one collision, you know, at all these possible masses. And the standard model predicts what we should see. Right, so here's a plot of, at each mass, how many events we had. See, we had 12 with a mass of 200, you know, and we had eight with a mass of 205. <clears throat> and the standard model predicts what we should see, and you see this slight excess here at 126? That's the Higgs boson, right? So the way the amazing Higgs boson shows up
right, is not with a flash. You know, it's with this subtle kind of excess, right, that we find by sorting through billions of these events. So that's what it's like to look for something there. Thank you. Right. So with that in mind, well, actually, to keep in mind, the theory was telling us exactly where to look for the Higgs boson. Right. Now, imagine you have billions of these events, and you're looking for something that the theory doesn't predict. Oh, man. <laughs> Think, billions of those. Look for something that the theory doesn't predict. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack when you don't know what a needle is. Right, right. So when the New York Times tells you that we haven't found anything yet, well, that's no surprise. It's so hard to find anything at all. So we have to keep looking. The experiment is going to run for another 10 years. The amount of data that we've recorded is 1% of the total amount of data that we will take. An experiment like this is like a big telescope. You know, you, you point it at the sky, and the longer you look, the more things kind of slowly come into focus, right? So we're going to look and wait for things to come into focus, right? And we will see. That's one answer to this question about fizzled. All right. <clears throat> um, second answer is, you might ask, did collisions at these energies ever occur before in the history of the universe? Right. Uh, and the answer is yes, they occurred the last time the universe was so hot that particles collided at this energy naturally. That was a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So what we're doing here, besides searching, besides studying the fundamental constituents of matter, is taking a look at what the universe looked like a trillionth of a second after it was initiated. Didn't want to say created. <laughs> so. If you could look at the universe a trillionth of a second after it was created, wouldn't you? And that's what we're going to continue to study. The third answer to the question about fizzling is, uh, is about uh, the technology. The LHC is a very large and complex device. It was very expensive. You can wonder whether we'll get another one that takes us to even higher energy. Um, in the event of that practical observation, it may be that whether we see anything or not, this way of doing things is not going to be possible into the future. Right? And so the kind of pessimistic, eh, the, the big view of way to look at this, uh, big view look at this is um, independent of whether we see anything here or not, we may not be able to keep doing it this way. So it's contingent upon 
us to figure out the next way to do this anyway. If we're study, if this is a way to study the Big Bang, maybe the way to continue doing this kind of physics is in some cosmological or astrophysical way. Right? We'll keep doing it. Surely we will keep doing it that way because our curiosity hasn't ended. It's just a question of how clever we can be. Thank you. Okay. Thank you both very much. And um, I have lots of questions after that, as I'm sure you do. There are some discussion questions on your table. Um, so you've, you've got the next third or so of our program will be talking to each other about what you just heard, trying to work out what it means. Um, those of you who have a background in, in physics or particle physics and that are in the room, re raise your hand. Okay, you can ask questions of these guys and gals. There's some, yeah. So, and if they're all over there, if you guys want to stand up and walk around, that'd be great. Um, our speakers will, <coughs> our speakers will will also circulate the room. Um, but some of the questions on the table are are really about um, things that you'll have answers to from your own experience. So I encourage you to talk to each other. We'll come back in a few minutes and have a large format group discussion. I'm going to try to bring us back together for a group discussion. I hate to interrupt such great conversations. I'm going to try hard to bring us back together for a group discussion, though. OK. Wow. So as I walked through the room, I heard lots of fantastic questions, lots of very animated discussion. Um, and, and so I want to I bring us back together so that we can bring some of these questions uh, centrally to our attention and have our speakers address them. Um, and uh, just a couple of uh, quick ground rules. Um, Aaron has agreed to moderate, and so he will let speakers know uh, when they have the floor and when they don't. So it's okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to be passing this cordless microphone. And please use it both to enable those with hearing impairments to hear, and also so that Lisa over there, Lisa, raise your hand, can record our conversation for later pass uh, uh, for later podcast. Why can't I say that? For later podcast. So please look at Aaron to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I have the microphone. Got that? It's confusing, but you guys can do it. I know. Um, please limit your questions or comments to about thirty seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. Aaron may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, Aaron will give preference to those who have not spoken yet, just so that we hear a diversity of voices. So there's lots of expertise in the room. I always hope that this part of, will feel a little bit more like a group discussion rather than just a question and answer session. Um, with this in mind, please feel free to address comments as well as questions to the whole room. Um, oh, this is important. We like to foster open discussion and honest debate. It's likewise important that we protect each other's safety in conversation. Please be nice to each other or else. If you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you may find yourself on a collision course and with a strange new nickname, like Charmed or Top or something like that. <laughs> 
Just kidding. No, please turn off your cell phones so they don't ring because it's hard on a podcast to explain that to people. Um, okay, would anybody like to start us off with a question or comment? It's all a very fascinating area. I was discussing with the postdoc this uh, double observation of an apparent new particle uh, half a year ago that turned out to be a statistical fluke. But if you did make such a discovery of a new particle, wouldn't that be sort of like uh, the, the energetic version of the end of physics? Isn't that something you'd hope to avoid? Probably muted. Oh, there we go. So. Uh, so let me a little as a as a point of background. I think some of this is discussed in the article that you have on your your table. Um, there was a, a particle that uh, people briefly thought may have been discovered. So this was uh, so you can look at uh, Dan's plot over there for the Higgs boson. And the way things work is uh, in quantum mechanics. Uh, anytime you have a collision, you don't know what's going to happen. You can only predict with some probability what is going to happen. And so uh, the Higgs boson is one of those super rare possibilities, right? So he said he's colliding things 40 megahertz, right? So 40 megahertz. 40 million times a second. 40 million times a second you're having collisions. You can see the number of events there in his uh, light blue Higgs thing is 6 plus 5. So there's like 11. Right, so you made 40 million of these things a second. You ran for several years, and you got 11 of them. Right, so that means that this is a very rare thing. And so what you do as uh, as a theorist is you uh, make a prediction for first what you think the red is, which is everything that was not a Higgs boson, and then they can go out and find, hey, wait a second, there was something else besides above and beyond the red, and that was the Higgs. And so now I'll come back to this photon thing. So, um, so there were events that instead of having all these yellow tracks in them, were just depositions of energy in these calorimeters. And that's how we see a photon. A photon's not a charged particle. It doesn't leave a track. And there were events that looked like two photons and uh, depositing energy in the detector and with some particular mass. And, uh, and so you plotted the energy of your two photons, and you saw the equivalent of the red curve. And the data followed that red curve pretty well, except for there was one place where there was a little bit of a bump. And people said, well, wait a second. Have we discovered some new particle that this thing is going to two photons? And uh, because things are only probabilistic, uh, you'll see that uh, even with that red curve, even the region where there's no Higgs boson, some of the points are lying above the red. And some of the points are lying below the red. And that's just what happens. The same thing as flipping a coin 10 times. You don't always get 5 and 5. Sometimes you get 7 and 3. You don't freak out. You flip a coin 100 times. You don't get 50-50. Sometimes you get 55 and 45. And so essentially what happened was there's this red curve for the two photons. And things came up basically like 80 uh, heads and 20 tails. And that's unlikely, but it can happen. And so you keep taking the data, and then uh, you, you figure out whether you, you flip the coin a 1,000 more times, and you see whether it keeps coming up heads more than you expected or not. And so what happened was it went away, and so there wasn't. So now it's coming back to your, so that's a bunch of history. And now your question was, well, what if we had found one of these things? Like, would we totally freak out? Uh, well, we would probably freak out in a good way. We'd be super excited. We would say, hey, wait a second. That's not on here. That's somebody new. 
right? So we have now discovered a new particle that doesn't fit into the standard model. And we would say, who ordered that? Uh, and so we would say, and I had this list of unanswered questions at the, really be, at the very beginning of our discussion. What's the dark matter? Why is there more matter than antimatter? What's preventing the Higgs from flying off to this really high mass? Does that new particle help me solve any of those questions? How does it fit into a more fundamental underlying theory? So that's the kind of question we would try to answer given that new particle. We wouldn't say, oh, everything we know is wrong. No, absolutely not. We would say, everything we know is presumably still working just fine, but there's something new out there, and hopefully it has implications for all of those unanswered questions that we're still trying to solve. The uh, physicists were uh, disappointing in not finding anything new other than the Higgs boson. Were, were they looking for super symmetrical particles and if with, with, would the uh, supersymmetric particles shed some lights on dark matter and if this is and would you please explain what supersymmetric the question was what is supersymmetry uh, what are supersymmetric particles? Do they have anything with dark anything to do with dark matter? And why didn't we find them? So that's uh, those are a lot of questions, and we could talk for three hours about those questions. Do you want to talk about it, or do you want me to talk about it? Or? The experimental part is that supersymmetry is an attractive theory because it builds on what we have as a foundation, and it makes very well-defined predictions of what we would see. And it's very theoretically motivated, which Aaron will explain. And it has a kind of a history. It's been around since the 80s. It become kind of embedded in our way of thinking about what is the new thing that we could see, right? In a way, actually, it's a kind of, sets a kind of benchmarks, you know, for new things that you could see, they'd look like this, right? So, in fact, the detectors were even designed to be able to detect supersymmetric particles. And at the experiments, lots of people are looking for these signatures. Right? So it isn't that we haven't looked, but those particular signatures haven't showed up. Now, that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means that the strength of the signal, perhaps, is not strong enough yet for us to see. Now, as to the theoretical motivations, I'll turn you back to Aaron. So first, let me just reiterate the, uh, just build on what Dan just said. Um, I told you this story about having these six or 11 Higgs bosons in this plot or whatever it is. And the prediction of how, number, how many there should be is something that the standard model predicts. Now, depending on exactly what the masses of those or the, the supersymmetric particles are, you could, they could be super rare, even rarer than the Higgs bosons. And that's why taking uh, 10 times as much data, 30 times as much data uh, might reveal them, even though we haven't seen them yet. So, so even though we haven't seen them yet, they still could show up. Why are we especially excited about them? Uh, so let me mention the, a couple of things. One thing is that they impinge on both of the question, open questions that I highlighted in my uh, introductory remarks. So the two, two of the things that I highlighted was, what the heck is this dark matter? And the other thing is I highlighted is why is this Higgs boson so light compared to this fundamental scale of gravity, which is six, 10 to the 16 times higher. So the Higg, uh, supersymmetry has something to say about both of those things. It turns out that the lightest supersymmetric particle, so supersymmetry says for every particle we know and love, everybody on here, there is a super partner. 
superpartner means there's another particle that differs only in its spin. So you may have remembered from chemistry class, electrons are spin up and spin down. That means these electrons have spin. Um, we think there might be a superpartner of the electron that's like the electron in the same way that it's charged, but it doesn't have spin. And so, that's, it has a, so that, would, that would be the superpartner of the electron, but it's also different in another way, which is it doesn't weigh one two thousandth of a proton mass. It also, it's presumably right at the edge of what this collider can produce at the highest energies. So, um, so that's what superpartners are. And it turns out the lightest of all of those guys could be the dark matter. It turns out that it has just about the right properties to give the amount of dark matter that we see today. So if a supersymmetry, so the we know very little about dark matter. We know, but one thing we do know, actually very precisely, to about 1%, is how much there is. So we actually live at a really interesting time in our history as, as a people. That, we, this, that there was a time before I was born where we didn't even know there was dark matter, right? We didn't even know that there was something to be worried about, right? But now we actually have a very precise inventory of the visible matter and the dark matter and something else called dark energy. And we know how much of each of these things are, we just don't know what the heck it is. And so we know exactly how much it is and it turns out that the supersymmetric particle gives, uh, would give the right amount that would reproduce what we've observed of how much there is. And so that's one of the reasons we're excited about supersymmetry is it, gives dark, it could give dark matter and it could give the right amount of dark matter. And it actually also, one of the main reasons we like supersymmetry is that it solves this problem of keeping the Higgs light. So the way, one way to think about the Higgs being light is uh, you could think about a pencil being balanced on its tip. Uh, and so quantum mechanics likes that pencil is like the pencil trying to fall over. And so if you walked into a room and you saw the pencil balanced on its tip, you could say, well, maybe that pencil's just balanced on its tip. You know, it just got set up there and it's just sticking there and it's just precariously balanced there. But more likely, there's an invisible piece of string that you can't see that's holding it in place. And supersymmetry does exactly that. So supersymmetry tames those quantum fluctuations and prevents the Higgs from getting dragged up to very high masses. And so those are two reasons that we're, we think that supersymmetry could show up, but you know, it, maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, then maybe that pencil just was balanced on the tip. Or maybe there's something else that's there that's not supersymmetry that's providing not a string, but you know, someone's holding it. Some fingers are there or something. So it's, it's uh, only time will tell. So let me, that's probably enough on that. So Aaron talked about worrying about dark matter because, you know, it's, there's five times as much dark matter as there is regular matter. And this is, this is, as far as fundamental physics goes, this may be one of, this is the problem of our time. And so, even after the last election, we're still mostly worried about dark matter. <laughs> is there a possible fifth fundamental force, and as it has been theorized that uh, when the universe was still very hot, that all the current forces were unified, that as the universe continues to cool, more of these forces could possibly separate? was, could there be other forces out there? You bet. Uh, we don't know. Um, they, they're not on this piece of paper, but it could be that, uh, so the, the, the photon is massless. It doesn't weigh anything. The W and the Z, they're pretty heavy. The W weighs about as much as 80 protons. The Z weighs about as much as 90 protons. And the, LHC, the Higgs weighs about as much of, as 125 protons, roughly. 
Um, and if you go to high enough energies, maybe you'll start making more forces that we haven't seen yet. Um, it turns out that the part of what makes the weak force weak and why uh, electromagnetism is so important to us, we don't worry so much about the W and Z, is precisely because they're heavy. So it could be that there could be a fifth force, but because it's heavy, uh, it's hard to see. Both it's hard to make that force carrier, but also uh, its effects in everyday life would be suppressed because of the fact that it's heavy. So it could be there, but we just don't know. That's, that's something we could be looking for. The LHC has gone through a couple of renovations, increasing the power. It's up to, I think, 13 TeV now. Is it possible that it'll go higher still, and will that create more particles, more theories? This, the energy scale that one can reach is set by the strength of the magnets, because right? a particle of a given momentum going through a given magnetic field bends by so much. So, in fact, the accelerating power, which is radio frequency cavities, is there to push the particles higher, but the magnets can go no higher in principle. I mean, maybe some kind of tweaks can be made so it goes to 14 or something like that, but these are the, like the most powerful mass-produced magnets ever made, right? and that, that is the limit. So to go to higher energies requires either a new, to go to higher energies requires either staying with that tunnel and going to higher magnetic fields uh, which, you know, may be possible with magnet R&D, but you would have to bear the cost of replacing all those magnets, right? Or you use those magnets, but you build a tunnel of larger circumference so that a given magnet doesn't have to bend the higher energy particles so much, right? This is under discussion. In uh, China is interested in doing this. Um, however, an interesting further practical issue is that you can show on very general grounds that as the energy goes up, the cross-section, the rate at which the particles interact, goes down. In fact, as the energy goes up, the cross-section goes down like the energy squared. So, you know, even if, it, even if you had the money to build a much bigger accelerator, to look for the processes at higher energy You'd either have to run for much, you know, if the energy went up by a factor of 10, the interaction rate goes down by a factor of 100. So either you run for 100 years, or you, huh? <laughs> right. or you, or you put 100 times more current in the machine, which means the interaction rate in the detector, instead of being 40 million times a second, is 4 billion times a second which would be a fun challenge for detector technology. We could make the detector out of cement and put the sensitive parts on the outside or something. But ultimately, there's a kind of a practical limit to the whole thing, which is kind of interesting. We're talking a lot about particles. I have two questions. What is a particle? And the second question is, when virtual particles are created or destroyed, is there an energy component to that? Is energy created or lost in either pro process? So what is a particle? So the, the, the mathematics that we use to describe uh, in, in particle physics is actually something called quantum field theory. Um, so what we use is, is, is something called quantum field theory. And for uh, the quantum field theory, the photon that has a name, quantum electrodynamics, um, maybe you've heard of Richard Feynman. That was, that was some of his work. Um, 
and the quantum theory that involves the gluon, that's quantum chromodynamics, but all of these are field theories. So the mathematics of the standard model is a quantum field theory. And so the, the fundamental objects of the standard model are actually, uh, we, we would call them quantum fields. And the way we think of a particle is actually excitations of those quantum fields. So uh, that, that if you ask a particle theorist, what's a particle, that's, that's the answer you'll get. Uh, is it's excitations of these, these quantum fields. Um, let me make a comment that might be of interest, which is uh, the Higgs is super different from all of the other particles. So uh, things like an electron, uh, there is no background electronness in our universe. But I can excite an electron by putting an excitation in that field. Um, so that makes an electron. Uh, Higgs is different. There is a background Higgs field. There is a Higgsness everywhere, even in the vacuum. So without uh, any excitations of the Higgs field, there is still uh, a background Higgs field, and it's actually interactions of the other particles with that background Higgs field that gives them their mass. And the stronger the interaction a particle has with that Higgs field, the larger its mass. And so one of the reasons that the Higgs loves to go to these Zs is that the Z is one of the heavier particles. And so it talks to the Higgs field more strongly. And so that's why the Higgs pretend, likes to go to the Zs and not to say to electrons. Um, now you could say, what's the Higgs particle? The Higgs particle is an excitation on top of that background Higgsness. So you have a background Higgs field, but then you have to further put an excitation into that field, and that makes the Higgs particle that you can see at the LHC. So that's the answer to what are particles. When a virtual particle is created or destroyed, is there an energy associated with that? Um, so when you destroy matter, you get energy. Um, so when the uh, virtual particle disappears, does it leave an energy signature behind? So I think I'm going to punt on that one for until after. We, we could talk about it afterwards, but to, even to describe what a virtual particle is, I think will take longer than we than we have. Unless, unless you want to say something, go ahead. See what a real particle is. Right, so, uh, so excuse me, you know, I was being a little facetious when I passed him the microphone and said, what is a particle? Because it's such a fundamental question. A quantum of the quantum, uh, an excitation of the quantum field? Yeah. Okay. From an experimental point of view, a particle is an object that has a spin, a charge, and a mass. And, uh, well, they're fundamental particles. So, you know, it's like this reductionist scheme. We're breaking things down into the building blocks and breaking down the building blocks into the smaller things, and what are you left with at the end? Um, an interesting thing about it is it's a point, right? These experiments are actually, in a way, we're all just continuing the experiment that Rutherford did, which is you point a beam, you point, he had radioactive particles, and he pointed, for him, the highest energy particles of the time into the atom, right, and looked at what they bounced off of, right, to see, and from the angles at which they bounce, you can see if the target has a size. We're continuing to do that, and now at the highest energies ever explored, the particles still seem to be fundamentally point-like, right? We, they have no internal structure, is what it means. Pardon me? That's what they said about atoms for a long time, and then there was a headline. 
Well, they said that about atoms, but then, but then the atoms were resolved into the smaller things, right? But we don't seem to be able to resolve these things into anything smaller, at least to the limits of our current experiment. I read that there's been a lot of um, experiments looking for dark matter, and they found none. And they're considering maybe the law of gravitation is different at large scales. They're giving that a second thought. Do you have any comments on that? So let me first comment on, so the, so the question was, there are lots of experiments that are looking for dark matter. And aside from the gravitational effects, we haven't seen them. And so, so first of all, maybe I should say what that means. So there are a lot of ways we look for dark matter. So one way we look for dark matter is we try to make it. But another thing that you might like to do is you might like to have some dark matter come smack into your detector and go on its merry way. And if it did that, you would, it would look really weird, right? Because you would have basically something, you would see nothing, comes in, hits, say, a nucleus, and then goes on its way. So you would see this nucleus jiggle with nothing coming in and nothing going out. So that's a particle recoiling against nothing. Right? So that's one of the ways that people look for dark matter. And indeed, for for theories like supersymmetry, you can make predictions about given the amount of dark matter that we see in our universe, and you can make some predictions about how strongly we expect it to interact with ordinary matter. So you could say, oh, I'll build a big enough tank of nuclei, basically, and with really sensitive uh, instrumentation that can see these tiny little recoils. And if I have a big enough tank, eventually I'll get lucky and I'll start to see dark matter bouncing off one of those nuclei. And so, uh, indeed, those experiments are getting more and more sensitive. They're, we have colleagues, you actually work on the smaller one of these, but there are so, we have other colleagues that work on some of the, the biggest experiments uh, in the world that try to, uh, the most sensitive experiments for looking for these um, kinds of interactions, and they, they haven't seen any yet. And uh, I think it's way too early to, to rule out this possibility, but it's, uh, it certainly would have been, uh, it's also fair to say it would have been possible to see something already. So uh, the way I would describe it is, even this is, this is really exciting stuff, but that's also really exciting stuff. These experiments are also right at the sensitivity that allow us to test some of these most interesting theories. Now the other thing you said was, well, what if you don't see any of these things? Maybe you should just modify gravity, because after all, all our evidence for dark matter has something to do with uh, things that we've seen gravitationally. Uh, and I will just say that it's very, very hard to make a modified theory of gravity fit all the data that we have um, about dark matter because we actually have evidence for dark matter on many, many scales. So not just in galaxies, but in clusters of galaxies. We've seen galaxy, clusters of galaxies pass through one another in ways that are consistent with the existence of dark matter and not necessarily with the modified uh, theory of gravity or something like that. We can look at the cosmic microwave background, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang, and we can see that the, the afterglow of the Big Bang, Big Bang looks as if we would expect if gravity is normal, but you add a little dark matter. And so if you want to modify gravity, maybe you could do it, but you better do it in a way that's consistent with all of those pieces of data that we have. And that's, that's a tall order at the moment. So I agree with everything you said. Nevertheless, I think Albert Einstein, great revolutionary that he was, would be shocked to discover that 100 years later, we haven't found anything wrong with his theory, right? And, and, and thinking also of the period in which he lived, 
right? Remember Michelson and Morley were looking for this ether drift and they built an experiment and they couldn't find it and they built a bigger experiment and they couldn't find it and they wanted to build an even bigger one, right? And the guy working at the patent office, right, who happened actually to be working on, actually funny thing, he happened to be working on patents related to time synchronization because of the emergence of the railroads in Europe and stuff. So he was thinking a lot about trains and time synchronization, right? And he saw sort of the alternative way to look at things that put the whole business of Michelson and Morley in the ether drift to rest. So you gotta wonder, should we build a bigger one, right? Or are we just waiting for someone to see the alternative point of view? This is the way, I mean, this, this is the way science works. Uh, null results can be super important too. Um, so the Michelson Morley is, is, is a classic example, but you, you learn something by not seeing things too. So I, I think that that is an important point to make. Um, I think maybe even one of the discussion questions is when, when is not seeing something a discovery? And you certainly can, you know, I, my, my job is I come up with theories and we test them. And you learn something if it's right, you learn something if it's wrong. Um, and if science is working properly, you revise your thinking when you get new data. And that's, that's the way it should work. So the, the uh, signal mark on your uh, uh, graph over there, the histogram that shows the, the Higgs boson, why is that got um, such a, why is it in two masses? Why? Well, the, so the, the, you've got a, a histogram there that presumably means that each of those histogram units is a mass. Why does it have a finite width, right? Is it just an uncertainty thing in the data, or is it something else? The width that one sees there, in the absence of any experimental resolution, is a measure of the lifetime of the particle. Now, the lifetime of the Higgs boson is such that if we had infinite experimental resolution, the width that we would see there would be very small, and the thing would be in one bin would be, we'd, we'd see, the thing would be in one, in one bin in the histogram, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Now, as it is, it's an experiment with a finite resolution. So the measurements that we make of the energy, right, have some uncertainty. We're measuring four things to put them together into that mass. And the combination of the uncertainty and the four things gives the thing that width. Uh, you remarked that there were um, thousands of these collisions uh, every, um, every uh, blink of an eye, and that you were going to be storing 10 years' worth of data. Wouldn't the storage and workup of this data require a, a supercomputer the size of Colorado? Yes. <laughs> well, well we, take some, um, we take some shortcuts. The beams collide 40 million times a second, and the detector has millions of channels. So to read all of that out 40 million times a second would be impossible. So the detector, in fact, is triggered, which is to say there's a room full of electronics which is looking at some subset, some crude subset of the detector signals like like 
is one of the elements in the calorimeter, uh, does one of the elements in the calorimeter have an energy above some threshold, right? And if that is the case, then that event will be read out, right? And there's another important thing about that besides just the volume of the data, when the detector is being read out, the detector is not sensitive. So while we're reading out an event, we're blind to the collisions that are continuing to occur. It's called dead time, and you want to minimize that. Right. So it's a triggered system. The readout is more like at one kilohertz, 1,000 times a second. Right. Um, so, so that's the, the practical way that we do this. It also has a very interesting um, uh, interpretation it means that the data that we record is all subject to the biases of the trigger, which are built in based on our assumptions, right? So in a way, it's a very dangerous way to do science, right? We're gonna trigger the detector on things that we expect. Oh, what if something happens that's totally bizarre and we don't expect? In fact, we guard against that possibility by recording uh, a in, in a separate stream, you know, every millionth event, no matter what it is, right? So that we can check, right, that in the absence of any bias whatsoever, there's not something bizarre happening. Yeah, actually, the computing for this is distributed across the world. Um, uh, Michigan is one of the institutions that has one of the Atlas so-called Tier 2 computing centers, right? Um, and I should, have, I should have on my fingertips the uh, gigaflops number for that, but I don't. But, you know, huge storage and computing capabilities distributed on the grid, and all of us doing the analysis, you know, submit our jobs out to the grid, out to the cloud, if you like, right, to get our results. Given your fields, do you ever come across um, any areas of an omniverse theory or multiverse theory or application of such? So the question is, uh, do I ever think about the multiverse? So the multiverse, the idea is that uh, we may be one in an ensemble of many universes. Now, uh, there's... Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a super interesting idea, uh, and it's a super interesting idea to think about what the consequences of that might be. It's difficult to, because they are by definition not in our universe, uh, it's difficult to observe any of those things directly. It's, I mean, by definition, frankly, impossible to observe those things directly. Um, if we became super convinced that there was no string holding up that pencil, nothing holding up that Higgs boson. One possibility might be we just live in the particular universe where that pencil is balanced on its tip. And I hope that's not true, but it could be. And it's not totally crazy, right? It just means we're asking the wrong kinds of question, right? So when we say things like, um, we, we know there are many, many, uh, solar systems in our galaxy, many, many planetary systems in our galaxy. And we know that many, many of those planetary systems have uh, planets in them. And we are not freaked out about the idea that 
we live 93 million miles from the sun? We don't think that that's an important question that we need to answer. Why is our Earth 93 million miles from the sun? We live on a planet that's 93 million miles from the sun because that's one that allows liquid water and things like that. And we don't think that's an important question to try and answer why we're that distance because there's billions of these things. And so we're, of course we're going to live on the one that's that distance from the sun. And so if you entertain the idea of a multiverse, then it might be that we live in a very special universe with very special properties. Uh, and so we wouldn't, so there were people like Kepler who tried to develop theories where you put icosahedrons inside doodecahedrons, inside cubes, inside regular spheres where he was going to try and explain the sizes of all of the orbits of the planets through some sort of fundamental geometric picture. And after we learn about the existence of all of these solar systems, we think, well, that's just an accident. We don't care about how those things, that's an accident of how these solar systems were formed. And that's the wrong question to ask. Uh, we shouldn't ask why the Earth is this distance. And so if there is a multiverse, then we probably should be asking different kinds of questions. Um, so that could be a very important idea. But uh, I spend, try to spend as little time thinking about it as possible. <laughs> okay. I think we're going to wrap up. I want to thank you again. And I want to let you know that our next Science Cafe will be in January. I think it's the latter part of January. Um, and if you would like to receive information about it and you're not already on our email list, um, please write your email down at the sign-up sheet uh, by the door or on your evaluation. And we'll be happy to forward you the description. I'm just putting together the, uh, all of the topics for next term uh, in, the next, in the next month or so. So once again, Thank you very much, and please thank our speakers. Thank you.